Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. This was a interview with both members of the Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto podcast. Mark and Arthur are two investigators in the Bitcoin space, and they have been following the Craig Wright saga for years now. Craig Wright is the most famous Satoshi Nakamoto impersonator, incredibly litigious, and he's left behind a lot of court cases and documentation that Mark and Arthur dissect in their podcast. It's really an excellent bit of investigative journalism. I've really enjoyed it, and I completely recommend it. So today in our conversation, we don't really recap the Craig Wright story as much as try to explore elements of it, the potential threat to Bitcoin, themes around scammers and populism and fraud. It's a sort of wide-ranging conversation, but I hope it's interesting even if you aren't too familiar with the Craig Wright story. And if you find it interesting, I definitely suggest you check out the Dr. Bitcoin podcast. Please enjoy my talk with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. For class of 2020 Bitcoiners, how would you describe Craig Wright? And I'm going to direct this question first to Mark. To people that have only just come into the Bitcoin world, it's quite hard to say. I imagine he is a peripheral figure, I would say. He still is a peripheral figure in the Bitcoin world who is trying to gain control over several aspects of Bitcoin in order to pursue his own ideological and financial agenda. He's someone from a while ago who is trying to make himself relevant to today in terms of what Bitcoin is and, and where he wants it to go. And he's doing it in a very bullish and aggressive way that is completely at odds with the ethos of the kind of cryptocurrency decentralized world. Maybe this is just to move back a little, but Arthur, how have you avoided being sued? Craig Wright seems to sue so many people. So how have you not been sued? And maybe you could talk us through how to criticize or critique Craig Wright safely. Let me tell you, I've even sent letters to Ontier. So they know my name, they know my address, they know my email. If they want to find me, they can easily find me because I proactively <laughs> got into contact with them. I think my force is that I source everything. Everything that I say is basically repeating what other people's already said. And if I quote and I link to that quote from all kinds of sources and I put my opinion on top of it, which is basically the same thing that I quote, but yeah, of course I make uh, the story a bit wider and more interesting, but yeah, in the basics it's, uh, it's that I prove my opinions based on things that I found in the public domain. And it comes from everywhere, from uh, court cases, from uh, ATO reports, from uh, mainstream media uh, articles, everywhere. For instance, Peter McCormack got sued for defamation. And that was because he made general disparaging comments about Craig Wright, whereas you will cite a specific instance of, say, Craig Wright falsifying documents and then lying about it, because you can't really contest these facts. They exist in legal documentation from court cases. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. You have to compare if Peter McCormick puts uh, 15 tweets out and uh, say something about he is a fraud, but he does not back that up at that specific moment with the sources. 
and his personal experiences behind those uh, statements, then you run into a chance that it becomes liberal. My things that I say are always backed. For example, if Ontier ever wants to put me into court, they have to take thousands of my tweets, which are always quotes from other sources. If they take my articles, and I have by now written uh, quite a few, between 15 and 20 already, I think, and there are most of them, the majority of them are long forms. So in total, uh, roughly between one and two uh, books, uh, big books already. If they want to put me in court for defamation, they have to give these articles to the judge. Well, be my guest. Go ahead, please. And try to prove that I'm wrong. Won't happen. That's an interesting point, because actually in your podcast, you've talked about how Craig Wright's strategy to legally intimidate people is by filing lots and lots of evidence. So it's very expensive to do legal discovery and get to the root of the fact that most of his evidence seems to be of very poor quality and and might even be forged or, or, or fictitious. And so you're almost working in the opposite direction because you've documented so much of Craig Wright's misdeeds that if he wanted to come after you, his lawyers would need to be paid to work through all of the evidence that you have. There's almost a cost barrier to coming after you, it sounds like. Exactly. And that will probably uh, stop them from uh, from doing that. But calls to go after me uh, have been many, let me tell you. But they never did it so far. Now, since we're on the subject of legal cases, Craig Wright claims to be a legal scholar. He might even have a degree in law. I think he said he does. He's sort of famous for being litigious and for a series of lawsuits in which courts have never proclaimed that they think he's Satoshi. But after a case concludes, Craig might claim that the conclusion is that he's Satoshi. So tell me about the COPA case, Mark. COPA is the Cryptocurrency Open Patent Alliance, which is a combination of kind of blue chip tech companies now. I think Meta is in there and Block, they used to be Square, Jack Dorsey's company, and there's, there's a bunch of other big companies in there as well. Essentially, they've all come together and they want their, their statement, their headline is they want to open up the, the blockchain metaverse, uh, what will be the metaverse and the blockchain universe, that sort of thing. They want to open it up to have the patents openly available so that people can develop things uh, in an unrestricted way. That's what their goal is. The problem with that as such is that they see Craig Wright as someone who is trying to dominate the field unfairly. He's known for being a patent troll. And so they have essentially sued him. Arthur will go into more detail here, but they've essentially sued him to say, you are not Satoshi Nakamoto and we will kind of prove that you're not. And if we win this case against you, you are not allowed to claim you are Satoshi Nakamoto in the UK. So bearing in mind his business is is UK based. He's got a lot riding on this. If he loses this case, he loses a lot of cachet. Uh, it's going to be hugely embarrassing for him. So that's the overview of, of, of the p- potential impact of that case. Thanks, Mark. And Arthur, can you throw some more specifics at that? No, that is uh, already rather well uh, explained. The fine tuning is, uh, however, that the case is, um, we call it uh, the he is not Satoshi case, but the fact of uh, the, the merits of the case are about. Uh, copyright the uh, there were several um, copa partners were uh, yeah threatened to be sued uh, by uh, Craig Wright for uh, hosting the white paper and he said I have uh, copyright on that white paper you do not represent the Bitcoin that I see as as a Bitcoin which is BSV you are promoting um, ETC which is not Bitcoin according uh, uh, Craig Wright 
And that's why I threat to sue you. Now, <laughs> if you know that uh, Coinbase uh, is one of the partners of uh, one of the members of COPA, they are quite aggressive uh, in these type of situations. So what they will do uh, is not await uh, Craig Wright uh, to move forward. They immediately start suing back. Uh, or, yeah, st- in fact, they start uh, a lawsuit and, and, and yeah, they, they want to be very aggressive in those two, uh, type of situations. And the merit of the case is about copyright. You do not hold any copyright on the Bitcoin white paper. But of course, this case is seen as a, a, a bit wider because if he doesn't have the copyright as Satoshi, then of course he isn't Satoshi either. So yeah. Now, the next case that you've talked a lot about in your podcast is the Kleinman case. Arthur, can you talk about the Kleinman case and what the details of it are and when it started and concluded? Yeah, that's a long story. It started actually already in 2014 when when Craig Wright uh, contacted the family of the dead Dave Kleiman. So he contacted his father and I think a few days later or a week later, the brother of dead Dave Kleiman took over, which was Ira Kleiman. Now, to cut a long story short, after a few years in 2018, when Ira Kleiman felt so bamboozled by uh, Craig Wright's promises, he started a lawsuit. He was this bamboozled that he still thought, probably still thinks, that Craig Wright uh, has a chance of being the real Satoshi Nakamoto. Part of that bamboozlement was that Craig Wright told Ira Kleiman that he did Bitcoin together with Dave Kleiman as a partner. Now, so the lawsuit was about a partnership where the dead partner did not get what uh, was deserved, what was uh, supposedly deserved if the story was true. Yeah, half of the intellectual property, half of the Bitcoin that was mined by uh, Satoshi Nakamoto could potentially run into the many, many, many billions. That case started early 2018. So I'm going back and forth. It ended up in a trial in November 2021. To cut another story really short, because the trial was really long, but it ended up that the jury could not find anything real. It was all lies, lots of forgeries. And if you ask me, we never, we officially, we don't know the motivation and, and the considerations of the jury. But if the only thing real that they could find was uh, something called conversion, that was one of the seven accusations that Ira Kleiman uh, put forward against Craig Wright and conversion was the only thing they could find, which means that conversion that is a sort of overhaul of something that is illegal and considered sort of type of fraud without calling it fraud actually. And he was punished for it with $100 million and a, uh, dollars and a bit later another $43 million in prejudgment interest. And why was that amount so high? Because that conversion referred back to something that happened in 2013 in the months, roughly half a year, before Craig Wright contacted Ira Kleiman. In July 2013, Craig started, an, as part of his uh, Australian tax fraud, he overhauled an old business that he did with Dave Kleiman in 2011. It was called WNK. It was a little company that they had together. They tried to land four projects in America in 2011 from Homeland Security that failed, that paperwork was overturned, overhauled into something with Bitcoin mining, something with uh, that looked like as if they had something done in 2011, something with Bitcoin, which actually never happened because it was only uh, some IT-related uh, stuff that they did in 2011. But in 2013, he managed to get a court ruling in Australia based on his fake uh, Bitcoin story that he owned $57 million in Bitcoin-related intellectual property. Now, 
And that overhaul, which is called conversion, was uh, seen as illegal in 2021. And he was punished uh, 100 million uh, for that. And that is, uh, well, in a not so short summary, the Kleiman case. Okay, that's a lot of detail. Mark, what is the broader context of the Kleiman case in the Craig Wright story? It's kind of a detour because a lot of his cases, if they're not specifically designed to do it, they are predicated upon the idea that he's Satoshi Nakamoto and he he pretty much wants to reinforce his Satoshiness with all of his court cases, which is why he takes people on. When he takes somebody on, it's because he wants a chance to prove he's Satoshi or he wants to just crush them because he hates them. So when someone starts a court case against him, it's usually a departure from that central theme. But because the jury found in favour, it wasn't guilty and not guilty because it was a civil trial, not a criminal trial, because they found in favour of him on every count but one, they have said, oh, the court found him not guilty of fraud, not guilty of this, not guilty of that. He won. He won the case. And it's this debate, really, between who won and who didn't. Now, Arthur and I consider if you go into a trial and you come out of that trial owing somebody $143 million, you have lost. You haven't won anything from that. Whereas they're like, well, he could have been on the hook for this, that and the other. So he has won. So it's this whole debate with both sides are seeing it as a victory, if you like. That's the impact it's had going forward. And they just trot out certain findings from the jury, completely ignoring the massive amounts of fraud that went on, the evidence against him in terms of the fraudulent documents and the rest of it, the lies, the backdating, the conversations that never happened. They ignore all that and they just go with, they said he wasn't guilty of fraud. <laughs> it's just this beautiful cherry picking. And um, yeah, a win equals owing someone $143 million. What does a loss look like? That's some seriously big brain logic right there. At this point, I feel like we have to ask the question, how is it that Craig can go to court, provide oodles of clearly fraudulent documentation and not end up in jail. Like, it seems weird that he can just do this with impunity. Is that because of some aspect of the legal system or is it because these are civil cases? Do you have an opinion on that? Oh, yeah. Nay, that's a good one. And indeed, in criminal cases, there you will be punished harder for this thing. In civil cases, probably not. For me, it's it's astonishing that uh, somebody can walk on the on this earth for like eight years and pretend to be Satoshi Nakamoto well everybody knows he's not but not only that he is frauding forging let's be honest he's on a path to try uh, obtain uh, half sorry the whole of the Satoshi stash on BTC which is roughly one million Bitcoin now yeah calculated at the current price and we're getting close to what is it 200 sorry 25 uh, billion something It's, it's a massive fraud that he is trying but why is he not in jail yet yeah basically because no judge so far, based on what was in front of them, no judge and no jury ever forwarded. It was not severe enough to forward for criminal case where he will be uh, punished for this. It seems like this might be a facet of the legal system because these legal cases seem to be considered independent of each other. But you have to zoom out and see his modus operandi, which is he's a source of legal mischief. So he seems to just consume legal resources and the resources of other people while perpetrating fraud. But if you look at it on a case-by-case basis, then maybe it doesn't seem like such a big deal. He's ramped this up over the years as well. We probably haven't even got time to talk about the most recent cases that he's put together. There's one case he threw in, I think a week or so ago, where he's suing uh, there's a class action lawsuit against a bunch of exchanges for £9.9 billion. He's suing Coinbase and Kraken for, I don't even know what that amount of money is for. It's just case after case after 
the case. He's just clogging up the legal system to try every which way he can to do something that could so easily be proved with a digital signature or something like that. But well, we may come on to that, but he won't do that. We could spend two hours just talking about his legal cases, but I feel like we'd lose the broader picture. So let's just talk about one more, which is the pineapple case. And Mark, can you just say, what is the danger of the pineapple case, even though it has a silly name? I'd like to say this is my favorite case because it's so stupid. The premise behind it is so stupid. So I love talking about this, but I I will respect your line of questioning and I won't (laughs) won't deviate too much. So what was the question again? Sorry, what's the what's the damage? What's the potential damage? Because the pineapple case seems to be the one where if he gets one win, this could snowball potentially. Yeah. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to claim that this 80,000 Bitcoin and the Bitcoin cash and the Bitcoin SV tied up in these uh, one and two wallets. He's trying to claim that he owns these wallets. He bought them years and years ago and they were hacked. They were stolen from him. And so he has gone to court to ask a judge to basically say, yeah, I agree. You owned these coins and the developers who are in charge of these various protocols, they must use certain software. They must basically break into the blockchain and give you your coins back. That would set an incredible precedent that would essentially destroy a lot of what's been built over the past 18 years, 14 years, whatever it is now. So that's the damage is he could set off a chain reaction that could allow anybody to try and claim that they've got these coins from wallets left, right and center and force developers of these protocols to give them the coins back. You mentioned BSV and I think BCH or Bitcoin Cash. Arthur, can you talk about what BSV and BCH are and how they relate to Bitcoin and maybe why a case like this would start with something like BSV and then move to BCH and eventually to Bitcoin? I think everybody who knows a little bit of uh, Bitcoin knows that it can be and it has been forked over the years. It's called a fork and it means that they just copy the code, they copy the protocol, and they start their own separate blockchain from, from the real Bitcoin. Uh, you have majority consensus continues as Bitcoin, and the minority consensus continues as an, uh, as an altcoin or a fourth coin. Yeah, they simply call them knockoffs, <laughs> mostly. All the knockoffs all the, that we have seen so far that have been more than 70 already, close to 80 we are, they never survive long, uh, in the long run. And the same goes for BCH, which is uh, which is Bitcoin Cash, and uh, BSV, which is uh, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, uh, now run by Calvin and uh, Craig Wright. They now hoover around place number between 30 and 35 for Bitcoin Cash on the market cap list. That has been uh, number two at some point in time, I think in 2017 or 18 uh, somewhere. Those knockoffs uh, started, the most famous now of those forked coins are BCH, Bitcoin Cash and and BSV, which is Bitcoin Satoshi Vision run by Calvin Air and um, Craig Wright mostly. They started at number two on the market cap list. Bitcoin Cash, BSV has also been in the top 10 once, but they have sunk until now. I think BCH is now around between 30 and 35. BSV is hoovering in uh, just uh, outside uh, the top 50. And BSV is actually a fork. When you look at the code, how it works, it still has uh, some uh, resemblance of Bitcoin. On the other side, the changes and uh, and differences are pretty wide, especially with uh, BSV. So anyone calling it uh, Bitcoin is, if you ask me a bit, uh, delusional. Uh, trademark feature of Bitcoin Cash and BSV was they attempted to scale the blockchain at the layer one level by simply creating bigger blocks. And anyone with an even small understanding of how computers work, networks work, 
blockchain consensus works, everyone said that is a really, really stupid idea. And I think those chains have proven that that's a stupid idea because I believe in your last podcast, you said that Bitcoin Satoshi Vision has less than 30 nodes on the network and very few of them are actually synced at the chain tip. It's very costly to run an, uh, a BSV node. They're lucky to have, I think, somewhere around 13 at the most uh, running at a chain tip. So yeah, it, it takes uh, not so much to, uh, to pull them over. I think that this gets to the point of the pineapple case, which is BSV is a highly centralized chain. And you mentioned that it's basically run by Calvin Ayer and Craig Wright. We haven't introduced Calvin yet, but we will in a moment. And so suing BSV to give Craig Satoshi's coins, it's sort of like suing himself. Why would he do that? What's the goal there? The pineapple hack case is not about Satoshi coins yet, but of course that is the end game for Craig. It's about uh, 110,000 uh, coins in total, 80,000 related to uh, a hack of uh, Mt. Gox, and 30,000 on a separate uh, address, 12 IB7 address. We don't know the background of that one uh, so much, so we always concentrate on the one fixed address with 80,000 Bitcoin. And technically, they are close, uh, actually, because Craig lost the pineapple hack case because of the judge had uh, no merits uh, to do such a case because the Bitcoin is uh, decentralized. The developers don't have an a fiduciary duty to help you with these type of uh, things. You're making uh, a specific uh, problem, a generic problem, but you cannot do that. So the merits of your case are uh, not uh, good enough uh, to continue. He's currently appealing, but uh, that appeal will not uh, succeed. However, the BSV Association did settle, (laughs) so to say. It's, of course, uh, just uh, one-on-one with Craig, and they say, yeah, we're going to help you anyway. You lost. It's fine with us. We will help you anyway. So they say that they are creating a so-called notary tool. They will then receive a court ruling or a document of what they say comparable force. And with that document, they will force, so to say, the developers of BSV, which is uh, mostly concentrated around N-Chain, to make that change in the blockchain. How they will do that, that remains a bit of a mystery. I can think of one option, for example, uh, freezing the existing uh, coins. Let's say, uh, let's take the one fixed address as an example. They freeze that address. They will make sure that uh, the coins on that uh, address cannot move anymore. They create a new address with a new 80,000 BSV and then appoint that, uh, hand it over to uh, Craig Wright with the private key that belongs to uh, to that new address. Now, and if they do it right, then they will probably also burn the 80,000 on the one fix address. Uh, otherwise, they have created an, uh, an extra 80,000 above the 21 million. Yeah, that goes against everything Bitcoin in white paper and, and elsewhere, uh, Satoshi said lost coins are just an, a gift uh, to uh, all the rest of uh, the users. Uh, so they have the, the value of their coin will uh, rise a bit with uh, yeah, the lost coins uh, being lost. What's amazing about the pineapple hack is how the idea behind it is indicative of how Craig clearly doesn't understand Bitcoin at all. He initially claimed that hackers stole the private keys to all of these addresses because they put a pineapple hacking device in his house, which of course is silly and has never been proven. He probably did it himself if there even was a pineapple. But then when you steal a private key for an address, you immediately send it to a new address that you control. Because if I see a private key that you 
you've backed up into a file, you might have other backups. So you could still send those keys to another address, even though I have this private key now. Like you're clearly dumb enough to make one copy. So you probably made a bunch of them, right? But he claims there was a theft and no coins ever moved. You know, it's like only in Craig's right universe do people hand around private keys instead of actually making transactions. Nah, he has an actually an excuse for that, which is at first glance uh, a rather good excuse. I think he said that it were in uh, in encrypted files that were stolen and inside those uh, encrypted files were the private keys. But what is the most amazing part of this story is that uh, he lost the backups and that he decided to delete everything after uh, the pineapple hack uh, has had taken place. And uh, so there was no backup ever, nowhere to be found uh, anymore. Now, yeah, he's one of the most uh, self-proclaimed credited cybersecurity. He has a lot of uh, certificates in that field. He has also a lot of uh, experience in that field uh, when he was still living in Australia. Those type of things is not what you expect from an, uh, yeah, a seasoned uh, cybersecurity expert. Didn't he also say, he hinted at the suggestion that they didn't know what they had. They planted the device to wipe his data and didn't realise what they got. So they still maybe don't know they've got the private keys to those wallets, which is laughable. Yeah, I remember he said that, yeah. Well, one fact about the pineapple case, which is the, the actual hack itself, is he supposedly reported it to the police. Well, firstly, this, this hack happened. He never said anything for weeks, for weeks, months and months, and then supposedly reported it to the police. I assume gave them the pineapple device. The first thing he did was instruct his lawyers to tell the developers to give him his coins back. He has never asked for the public's help in tracking down this team of hackers that knocked out three security systems in one go. No one's ever come across this team of hackers around Surrey, a leafy part of England. He's never said, you know, watch out, these guys are on the loose. The police have never asked for any help from the public and never have identified, let alone arrested anyone. And yet we're supposed to believe this actually happened. It's just nonsensical. It seems like typical Craig Wright because everything's not really thought out very well. Because if Craig Wright manages to get a court to say he's Satoshi, I mean, the CIA would like a word with you, you know? Like, like if he wins, it's not going to be as good as he thinks it is, I believe. <laughs> Well, this might be why he's trying to now not backtrack. It's always with a bit of a, um, oh, I don't want it to be me, but it's me. This is my lot as the creator. There's always this sense of, you know, oh, woe is me. It's rubbish, utter rubbish. Now, we mentioned the name Calvin Eyre in relation to BSV. Who is Calvin Eyre and how is he enabling Craig Wright to go on this legal rampage? I'll give this one to Arthur. He knows a bit more than me about Calvin's background, I think. <laughs> Kelvin came in the picture in halfway 2015. That was when Craig Wright was getting into trouble with the ATO. I mean, serious trouble, millions of trouble. His tax fraud, which started 2013, was pretty big. It ran into the millions. And at some point, after several inquiries, the ATO started to ask some of the tax back. And the bill that he got in June 2015, yeah, was pretty high. I think close to 10 million Australian dollars. Now, that was the moment that he uh, felt uh, bankruptcy coming. So he was uh, shopping around to get these millions from uh, from people. Even Roger Ver was uh, was in his sight. He was already befriended Roger Ver in that era. But it was actually Calvin Eyre who bite. He was and still is very bamboozled in, in this whole story. He, he believes probably seriously that Craig Wright is indeed uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Yeah, so he decided uh, to help him with his friends uh, Stephen Matthews and Robert McGregor back then. Robert McGregor later uh, 
moved out, pulled out uh, of this uh, story. But Stephen Matthews and Calvin Air were still uh, were then back then and now s- still are supporting uh, him. First for a uh, bailout of 50 million, and that uh, yeah later continued with uh, the legal rampage of uh, tens and tens and tens of millions. Also, yet Calvin Air is uh, paying. Craig Wright is uh, loaning the money from Calvin Air with the fake uh, Tulip Trust as a uh, collateral. And is this documented or is this sort of a speculation? Nay, this is certainly not a uh, speculation. This is provable. We can even, for example, prove that in June 2015, in that the moment of the bailout, there was an escrow arrangement uh, made and Craig Wright used as collateral for that arrangement because Kelvin Air was asking for it. At that moment, Craig was still uh, was already playing around with the one fixed address that he never owned, never had, never bought anything. <laughs> he picked that address already in 2013 and in 2015 he created a uh, paper wallet forgery and defrauded Kelvin Air with it for an uh, estimated amount of 20 million American dollars because the price in June 2015 was around 250 uh, Yeah, does Kelvin Air know? I don't think so, but it is provable that this forgery that was used as a, as a collateral for that 50 million bailout, that paper wallet was a forgery. Yeah, that's so interesting because this forgery is something that Craig could actually go to jail for, except Calvin needs Craig to be Satoshi. He's almost a hostage in this situation. He kind of seems to stick with him and descend further down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think there's some truth in that. It's a sort of some cost fallacy uh, thing. Exactly. So, Arthur, can you tell me about the Satoshi signing debacle? Was this the first time you'd seriously looked at Craig Wright? Yes and no. I knew Craig Wright already before in 2015, just before the Wired and Gizmodo uh, docs uh, story. They revealed him as a uh, candidate for uh, for being uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. That was already uh, debunked pretty quickly, uh, heavily criticized. They found a lot of inconsistencies and, and forgeries in that uh, docs package that was sent around to several media. A bit later, in May 2015, there was indeed this uh, signing sessions uh, debacle. That refers to one of my articles uh, where I dived into that story uh, pretty deep. And um, But I, I knew about, uh, about him already. But uh, after that May 2016 uh, event, I yeah, I decided this, this guy is not interesting. He is not Satoshi, so I ignored him for several years. But that changed in 2019, early 2019, when my friend Holnot in uh, Norway was uh, chased for uh, Libel. So I decided that people, for myself, that people who are in court cases, people who are unaware of, of the massive fraud that this guy is doing, while I was reading on the internet many, many debunks already over the years, but by many different people spread all over the internet. So I decided uh, to gather all that information, put it in a timeline and make it available for people who uh, who needed it and uh, yeah, who should be aware of, uh, of this. And one of those very important moments where we can rather clearly see eh, how he is uh, deceiving uh, the community as uh, Toshi uh, candidate that is around his uh, signing sessions in uh, May 2016. Right. And that was a very dramatic moment because Gavin Andreessen actually flew to England and witnessed Craig Wright signing something, signing a message using a Satoshi key, supposedly in front of him. But when I heard that story, I thought, this is so stupid. Why would you fly to England? All you need to do is sign the message, post it on the internet, email it to me, whatever. Why would Satoshi want you to fly to him? I mean, when when Gavin first contacted Satoshi, 
he said, hey, where did you go to school? He asked all these personal questions about Satoshi and Satoshi never told him anything. So now Satoshi has emerged and, you know, wants to hang out and have a beer and will only sign a message in person. It was so weird. Yeah, exactly. If you if you dive into those type of details, it totally makes no sense. And then knowing that it is uh, rather easy, they used an Electrum uh, wallet, which can be hacked, which it's, it's an open source uh, wallet. You can hack it with one, two, three lines of code, change uh, the addresses that appear in the screen, reroute to an address with a private key import in the Electrum wallet. There are several tricks that you can do with Electrum wallet to make it appear as a signing, as long as you have control over the device where the Electrum wallet is hosted. Yeah, that will, of course, never work on a uh, second installation of Electrum wallet on another device. So that's why Craig was <laughs> very reluctant. As he has always been very reluctant to share this information with the signature of the signing with other devices, let alone in public. And also, we've spoken to Rory Kathleen Jones, who is the guy from the BBC who interviewed him during that signing session. And he said straight up, I had no idea what I was looking at. I knew what Bitcoin was. That was about it. I didn't know really who this guy was. And this supposed proof he was showing me, I was in no position to say yes or no, that's right, that's wrong. I didn't know what was going on. He just signed this thing, told me who it was. I asked him some questions and that was it. So it just shows you the the reason why they got the guys they did to target them and, and how they got away with it. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think that's a mark of a scam. I'm thinking of Theranos, for instance. You have people of stature. It's like the scammer tries to associate with establishment figures like the BBC, like prominent people, but carefully selects no one who can actually challenge them, no one who has the technical chops to evaluate the scam. And it's like this pattern we keep on seeing. And the only person that did challenge it was the guy from GQ. And he was the only person who had the the chops, as you say, to challenge Craig Wright. And what resulted was... I mean, it sounds like Craig is about to punch the guy. Well, yeah, he's the only person through the entire signing sessions that, that knew how to criticize Craig Wright. And he just lets fly at him because he's not expecting these hardball questions. And it just shows... The one person that knows what they're talking about, he just, he cannot cope with it. Yeah, and he gets so aggressive and so vulgar. It's just shocking that anyone could think that this is Satoshi. Satoshi was the coolest cucumber in the world. I think the most aggro thing Satoshi ever said was, if you won't take the time to understand, I, I don't have the time to explain it to you. And he did it recently. He he did it just last week, wasn't it, Craig Wright? It was this YouTube video from some Australian news panel thing that went out. And this guy was pressing him and saying, well, why don't you just you know send some coins? And he's like, no, you're a wanker. It just immediately comes out with, with the curse words when he doesn't get his way. And then his publicist stepped in, stepped in to stop the line of questioning after that. Gosh, that's amazing. We've talked a lot about the characters involved in the Craig Wright story and some of the notable events. And I think the broad shape of it is that we have this Australian fellow, seems to be involved in a tax fraud, finds it convenient to claim to be associated with Satoshi for the purpose of this fraud. It blows up in his face, but then he seems to lean into the Satoshi story and he finds a sponsor in Calvin Air and the saga continues. But what's kind of interesting is that there could be serious consequences to Craig Wright causing legal trouble for Bitcoin. Bitcoin developers. So I want to ask Mark this question. Do you think that this story is just a human drama piece, like a sort of tragic comic story about the beginning of Bitcoin? Is there something deeper here? Is this actually perhaps threatening to 
Bitcoin developers and the development of Bitcoin and the legal status of Bitcoin? Only if he scores a major legal victory. In terms of Bitcoin development, in terms of Bitcoin's future, that was the pineapple hack case. That was his, probably his best chance. I mean, that was what, three years, two years in the planning. So that one hasn't come off. And I think that was his best chance to do that because that would have screwed so much up. The legal problems he is posing are a affecting certain things because there are developers that are leaving the space because they worry about being targeted. There, there, there was a point around that time when people were leaving the development space. I'm sure Arthur knew some of them personally, perhaps. They were leaving because they were worried about what might happen to them. It was really, really gratifying to see people step in to support them in their fight against him. Otherwise, he could have just steamrolled them. So that was the best chance he had. And I think because he lost that case, I actually don't think he presents as much of a danger as people from the outside might might suspect because, well, partly because he's just been trying for so long to achieve these things and still he's getting no notable success. He's no closer to his major goals and he's just digging himself further and further into a hole. He's flailing more and more around. He is like Trump in his last days. I, and I equate him to Trump in many ways, but he's like Trump in his last days. He's just desperate now, absolutely desperate. And desperate people are not dangerous people generally, unless they manage to to hit you, you know, with with a, with a lucky blow, and I think unless he does land a lucky blow, he's going to be a marginalised figure, more and more marginalised. Even the BSV community are leaving the project now. There are more and more people abandoning it because of his attitude and what he's doing. And he thinks with every big lawsuit, it's that next chance to to get himself out of the hole. It's it's that Batman film. I forget which Batman film it is. When Bane is uh, in that well, they climb up that staircase inside the well and they try and jump to freedom. He's got one or two more jumps left in him. And I think if he misses those ones, he's he's done. Having delved into his story and read through hundreds of pages of legal briefs, you know him so well. Could you describe him after getting so deeply into his... Is there anything other than a desperate narcissist? Or is he just sort of uninteresting other than the egregious lies and forgeries that he's perpetrated? Let's be honest, we all want him to go to jail, but he needs medical care. This guy is probably hurt in his youth that made him a con man and scammer for the rest of his life because this is not new. I mean, his Bitcoin scam scammery is not the first time that he was uh, scamming. We, I know people from his youth that were already uh, pretty uh, critical uh, about him. The thing that pops up most is uh, what is called the NPD, the Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Yeah, he's a megalomaniac uh, in that sense because it goes from one crazy story to the other. Instead of backing down, he will come up with the next even more crazy story on top of it. Let me give you a little example of that. In the era when he was first uh, pretending to be uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, that started in 2014, so roughly in 2014, 15, 16, it was all uh, David Rees and Dave Kleiman that were his uh, his teammates in uh, in Satoshi Nakamoto. Now, yeah, that has been debunked uh, quite uh, thoroughly in, uh, in court cases and by the ATO, so yeah, he does not mention them as uh, Satoshi members anymore. So now it are two totally different people, his uncle uh, Donald Linham and a an, uh, spy uh, from England uh, called uh, Gareth Williams. And Gareth Williams is a guy who was found uh, dead in a bag in his uh, bath. Quite uh, suspicious uh, circumstances, so to say. It goes from uh, crazy to more crazy all the, all the time. Do you think that Craig listens to your podcast? 
<laughs> I have no idea. I'm 100% sure that uh, his counsel is quite interested in um, at least the things that I write. If they listen to the podcast, I cannot say. But there was this while when I was on uh, LinkedIn, when the head of his counsel uh, owned here, Mr. Uh, Simon Cohen, he checked me out on LinkedIn nah, sometimes a few times a day. <laughs> Having done two seasons following the Craig Wright saga and seeing the recent developments, has it made you think differently about Bitcoin and the history of Bitcoin. Do you think that we're still in the beginning of the story or the middle? Just some thoughts examining it from the perspective of this person constantly trying to be proven Satoshi Nakamoto. I think in many ways, he and his attempts sum up what's wrong with the crypto space in general. I mean, he is the epitome of the scammer. And we all know crypto is rife with scammers. So as far as the crypto space goes, I think he personifies what everything that's wrong with it. As far as Bitcoin goes, has it changed my mind on, on Bitcoin? Not really, because I knew about Bitcoin before I knew about him, maybe three to four years before I knew about him. And I didn't buy it even before I dug into this. I didn't buy it at the time. And it's actually Bitcoin as an entity and Bitcoin as a potential, if you could say that. And Craig Wright are just, the more I look into it, the more they're just divorcing from each other. There's no, that. that's why I say I don't think he poses a threat because they're just drifting further and further away from each other. And he's just becoming this more peripheral figure, fading loudly into the background. And I don't think it says much about Bitcoin itself. As I say, it says a lot about crypto, but I don't think you can really equate anything about Craig Wright with Bitcoin because he's so far from everything it is for. Because for me, this is quite an interesting journey that I've made. I learned about Bitcoin in 2012. I stepped my toe in the water in 2013 already when I bought my first Bitcoin and from then onwards, I started trading uh, for a while, but also dabbling in some uh, some altcoins. So I have not always been Bitcoin only the last few years. I am, but it has not always been that case. Although I still have sympathy for for several altcoins. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I don't consider myself a 100% uh, maxi, but let's say 90% uh, maxi or something. What I found out in those years, eh, because now we are doing it three, four years, I have been comparing quite a lot of text of Craig Wright with Satoshi Nakamoto himself and try to figure out what did Satoshi mean here? What is Craig Wright trying to say to the audience? It contradicts Satoshi, of course, a lot. But I figured out, knowing no more and more and more, even diving into the code of Bitcoin, the source code from back uh, in uh, November 2008 and, and, and later, it was actually pretty brilliant what this guy uh, made. It might not have been code-wise bug-free, but the whole concept, the whole design of Bitcoin is pretty unique and actually quite brilliant. So I have found a deeper level of love is a big word, but at least an understanding and a trust in myself that I think that Bitcoin is indeed on a way to become a um, reserve currency and will indeed push out many altcoins that will not survive in the long run, but Bitcoin will. So yeah, this, this whole process of debunking Craig Wright has helped me also uh, on my path of becoming an, um, yeah, more and more of an uh, of a Bitcoiner and 
and less and less an, an altcoiner. There's one thing I will say that you guys just talking about this has just made me think this is another reason why Craig Wright can't be Satoshi because Satoshi built something. He created something incredible. He took elements of what was already there, combined it with a brand new mindset and then worked with people on an equal level to them, perhaps even an inferior level to them, he may even have felt, to create this thing and then left it when he thought it was in good hands before anyone even knew about it. Craig Wright does not build anything. He is an autocratic leader who tells people what to do and anything he does try and create, it's just an utter sham. It's surface level. It falls apart with the slightest scrutiny. He's trying to lie and scam his way through. He doesn't build anything. There's no way that this guy who's got this short fuse and demands so much control over something and, and flies off the handle when things don't go his way. There's no way he had the patience and the dedication and that kind of mindset to build what Bitcoin was when it launched. The two are completely incompatible. Now, the big question is what your next investigative podcast is going to be, because Dr. Bitcoin is just so great. And it's odd because I came to Dr. Bitcoin remembering the missing crypto queen and that kind of almost uh, edge of your seat story. And Dr. Bitcoin is very uh, different because it's incredibly detailed. It's about these countless details of fraud and forgery and court cases. But at the same time, it's really a compelling story and it gripped me. So I'm wondering what the next podcast is going to be. For me personally, it's not about the project. It's about the person. Without Craig Wright being who he is and doing what he's doing, I wouldn't be into this as much as I am. I mean, we haven't finished. That's what needs to be said now. Craig Wright hasn't finished, so we haven't finished. We're still doing monthly updates. Every month we try and do a podcast on what's happened in the last month. And you wouldn't believe what can happen in a month with this guy. It's incredible. We also do specials. We did a two-part special on the Peter McCormack case recently because that was so spectacular. And he's got these other court cases coming up, which we're going to do specials on. So the idea is to keep this going for as long as we can keep it going, as long as the guy is still out there, still doing what he's doing. We're also looking at ways in which we can maybe take this further. We're trying to get something onto a, a TV network or something along those lines, which would be bringing it to the mainstream even more. We, th we think the story has got legs to take it to a TV network. As far as a Craig Wright story goes, that's not finished yet. I have made plans and have started writing a series on the Mt. Gox hack, because I think same as, as Craig Wright, there's a lot out there. Interviews with the people involved, there's newspaper reports, there's this, there's court documents. But no one's packaged the whole thing together and produced it in a way that you can hear the story from start to finish. So I've started working on that. That's probably going to be my, my own personal one. Arthur's not involved in that. So as to what Arthur's doing next, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Something along the same lines, but it's not called Mont Gox, but it's called uh, probably uh, Dr. Bitcoin, <laughs> the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, but in a book form. <laughs> that is uh, what I have in mind. Um, what I see happen in the in the near, somewhat near future, is that we will see the whole Nord Coast uh, come to trial in uh, September. That's only one month uh, from now, I think, 12, 12 of September that will start. Craig Wright will not win that case, but the ruling might take a while after that trial. We don't know yet. 
Peter McCormack uh, trial also, uh, sorry, the ruling after the trial also took uh, took a while. Then we have uh, in 2023 also another Hoddlenaut case, but in the UK that will come to trial. We have those BSV chasing uh, several exchanges for a delisting uh, case. We have Craig Wright chasing Kraken, Coinbase, several more and several developers for passing off with the, the Bitcoin name and the BTC ticker. Now, all those cases will take a few years. I can see it all end with the Copa case, which is a bit of a, a hidden case, but probably bigger than uh, than we think, because it's about is he Satoshi? Is he or isn't he? If he does not succeed there, and you know, if you ask me, all the cases we've seen so far has seen uh, many forgeries and lies that have been debunked, and he never succeeded in uh, even being recognized uh, in the slices as, uh, as Satoshi. So I don't see that happen in the Copa case uh, either. That will probably the moment that it will end either with a big bang or it will fizzle out uh, after that. And that might be a moment that I uh, want to start writing a book and uh, yeah, wrapping my articles uh, together and then give it uh, a nice cover. So I'd like to hand off to the two of you to point our listeners to anything you'd like. So you can find the podcast, Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto at wherever you get your podcasts from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, even YouTube, it's all there. The Twitter handle for the podcast is at Dr. Bitcoin Pod. Even BSV fans are welcome. We don't block anybody. We're open to all sorts of conversation. Most of my work is done for um, a news website, fullycrypto.com. That's where I discourse on all things crypto. So yeah, between that and, uh, and Dr. Bitcoin, I have no free time just go to my uh, Twitter account at Arthur underscore Van underscore Pelt. On my Twitter account, you can find further links to uh, to the Dr. Bitcoin uh, podcast. You can find my uh, the link to my Medium page. Well, thank you both for your time and for producing such an enjoyable and long-running podcast. I hope that our listeners will check it out and enjoy the Dr. Bitcoin story along with you. To its conclusion, because we still don't know how it's going to turn out. And it's just been an absolute pleasure talking with you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Certainly. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember, you can always get in touch, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter or boost in with a podcasting 2.0 enabled app. Links in the show notes. Thanks again and see you next time.